Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is The Patron Problem. In this episode, we will be looking at the racial tension that was present surrounding the white sponsors and patrons during the Harlem Renaissance. As always for this series, it will be easier to follow along today if you take a moment to listen to our other podcasts on this subject. This will be our last episode for the Harlem Renaissance period, and it will also be our last official episode for season one of Vanguard at Dawn. That's right. We're wrapping up for the year. We're going to take a nice little break. Our brains are so fried. And it's getting to be that time of year for us to spend some quality time with loved ones during the holiday season. And we hope you all are able to do the same as well. But don't worry, we are not completely done for this year. We will have two special episodes coming out spaced throughout the month of November that will be completely unscripted, where we will review some of our favorite things we learned while making the podcast this year, read some heartwarming comments that we've received, and hopefully share some facts with you that we weren't able to fit into the podcast segments. Yes, and also you won't have to miss us too much. You might perhaps keep your eyes open for some other projects and collaborations we may or may not be planning with some of our associates. Better keep them eyes peeled if you're interested in that. So without further ado, let's get started. Alright, so we've hinted at this subject a couple of times throughout the series. In the very first episode, our loving ode to Gladys Bentley, we discussed briefly that one of the biggest critiques of the Harlem Renaissance was that some felt it was too wrapped up in white approval. But there's lots of reasons for that, and we want to dissect that a little more. Y'all know racial ideology is my jam, and as much as I wish white people didn't get their own segment during our series on the Harlem Renaissance, which is supposed to be all about black upliftment, unfortunately, this is a piece of the puzzle that explains the different levels of racial oppression systemically and socially during this time period. So let's take a second here. I'm sure most of you are aware to some degree what a patron is, but just in case, for full context, here is the official Google definition. A person who gives financial or other support to a person, organization, cause, or activity. So this has really always been a thing in the arts. Usually, you either already come from money or you have a patron or patrons help support you during the beginning stages of your career. Before you have enough name recognition among others in your profession or to get research grants or whatever else you might need to make it in your industry. And as we've mentioned, the Harlem scene was bustling with artists of all fields. So naturally, many of them had to look to patrons to be able to sustain their way of life. Literally most of the people we have brought up in this series have had patrons. There were many different patrons during this time, most notably for our lecture today, a woman by the name of Charlotte Osgood Mason. We're going to look at her case more closely than other patrons for a couple of reasons, but in large part because you all should be familiar with two of the people that she was a patron to, specifically both Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. It is important to be aware that we are going to be discussing very problematic notions she held. But more importantly, you must understand that she was not alone in these notions, nor was she the only individual at the time with these problematic views. In fact, that's why she is such a great example. 
she represents this clear duality between the positive aspects of patrons and the more negative aspects too. Let's start with the more positive points regarding her contributions. To give a little insight on her, Charlotte was born into a rich family in the year 1854 in New Jersey. She then married a man named Rufus Osgood Mason in 1886, who passed away in 1903, but left the widowed Charlotte with an abundance of wealth. That's another thing to understand about why white patrons were often the main source of money behind the artists of the Harlem scene. You might be wondering why the elite black population that was emerging from these metropolitan areas weren't acting as the patrons here. And while it's true that much of this movement was indeed fueled by those very people in other ways, i.e. notions like the Talented Tenth, patronage is usually something that's only manageable financially when you are filthy rich. Yeah, and while it is fair to say that slowly but surely, especially in the northeastern part of the United States, that black people had been able to find some form of wealth at this point, there's still not going to be like generational wealth, of course, which is a huge difference. The only group of people that did have old family money are going to be predominantly white people. According to Cheryl Wall's lecture that we cited in our Zora Neale Hurston lecture, Mason had been born into a family that literally had been wealthy since the founding of the United States. So that's why it's also so frustrating that one of the critiques of the Harlem Renaissance is that it was too wrapped up in the approval and at times creative control of white people. Because literally, artists need to make money somehow to do their thing and are basically forced to turn to the wealthy to provide them financial support, which again has been the way of the fine arts world forever. So yes, there are different layers to it all. Some who sought white approval during this time were also only doing so because they recognized that white people had control of the country, both financially and politically, and very often socially too. So there was that very real concern of having white people approve in order to not wreak havoc on the beautiful culture that had been given room to grow even more during this era. But also a huge part of that was white people had kind of forced their way into the matter by stepping in as patrons. Um, Ren? Not to be that person, but um, wasn't it nice of white people to help financially support the black community during this awesome wave of empowerment? Hey Mo, yeah, that's a great question honestly. There's a lot to be said about what they provided. Going back to Mason and her more positive attributes, she really did help many black artists, writers, and researchers financially, and in total spent about $100,000 doing so, which is equal to over a million dollars today. She also stood for some awesome ideals that pass the vibe check to this day. For example, she made huge contributions to the world of education, as she felt a well-rounded liberal education was imperative and something that should be accessible to everyone everywhere. That was literally her platform, a liberal education for all. So that's pretty cool of her. On top of that, both Langston and Zora loved her deeply, and they both expressed that a lot through letters that they wrote to her and their loyalty towards her. All right, now let's stop sugarcoating her, shall we? Let's get into why I can say with my whole chest and mean, she sucks. Something that we haven't talked about yet is how the white world perceived this wave of African-American culture flourishing. Of course, you have the racist backlash from the ever-present white supremacists, but 
there was another layer too, which pertains more to this segment. Many people, particularly wealthy people, had grown this fascination towards the exoticness and primitiveness they found within the black community. This time period is often said to be when the Negro was in vogue. In other words, black people, or more pointedly, the exploitation of black culture for the purpose of entertainment was in style. Fashionable rich white people were absolutely obsessed with labeling anything and everything pertaining to African American culture as exotic. And due to notions like this, that's why often African American culture is essentially othered and separated from the broader and overarching American culture. It would be ignorant to try and say that much has changed regarding that to this day. But also, that is what made the influence of the Harlem Renaissance both nationally and internationally important, especially with figures we've discussed before like Langston Hughes and Duke Ellington who had this overarching theme in their work that stressed the importance of their work being seen as American work just as much as it was seen as Black. Very true. But let's go back to that fascination of exoticness rich white people found in Black culture. This is why many white patrons became so invested financially in the Harlem Renaissance movement. Let me be clear here. This stance is not indicative of every single sponsor or patron, but there were very many who did fall into that category. Well, I don't think it was 100% Charlotte Mason's reasoning behind donating, I would certainly feel comfortable saying that it did have something to do with her desire to pump her money into artists and writers from this movement. That is actually backed up by a quote from Cheryl Wall in her lecture in regards to Mason. She was interested in things exotic and primitive. She had previously supported work on Native Americans. When she did switch her attention and money in support of black creators instead, it was directly tied to her misguided notion of not only their societal labels such as primitive or exotic, but also the fact that it was in fashion. This is such a fine example of the difference between genuine appreciation and tokenization and degradation behavior, and of course, that translates to both the black community as well as her contributions to the indigenous community. So gross. Believe it or not, she somehow gets worse. For example, one of the things people call her out on the most was her controlling nature as a benefactor. You may remember that Zora Neale Hurston had carried out extensive research in the South. Her goal at the time was to uncover information on hoodoo practices and also folklore of rural African-American communities. Those expeditions were actually funded by Charlotte Mason. She even bought Zora Sassy Susie, aka Zora's beloved car, and gave her a monthly stipend for basic necessities. While that sounds great of her to do, it hikey wasn't at all. To quote Cheryl Wall, not only did Hurston have to account for every nickel she spent, including the most personal items, she was employed as, quote, an independent agent who was deputized to collect black folklore on Charlotte Mason's behalf. Mrs. Mason would own the folklore Zora Neale Hurston collected. Alright, so like, that's so messed up for so many reasons. One that Wall quickly points out in her lecture, you can't own folklore. Like what? It's folklore. Additionally, 
folklore, like so much in African American culture, was passed on through oral tradition, just like black history had been, just like niche practices like hoodoo had been. And similarly to many things rooted in the black community, it is not respectful to take any part in the retelling or even knowing such folklore unless you have expressly been invited in. It is an intrusion. Not to mention, how can one ever claim to be an ally to the black community if they are so willing to rob that community blind of all the culture that had managed to survive even after generations of oppression. Her reasons behind feeling entitled to ownership of folklore could not matter less. It doesn't matter one bit why she thought it was okay, it just wasn't. Not only that, but because of her complicated contract with Mason when it came to her research, Hurston was not able to publish much of her findings which kept those findings from being discovered and preserved by the larger black community as it should have been. So, though she had gifted Hurston with the financial ability to carry out this research, she also stifled the process quite a bit to say the least. So here's the difference between good patronage and bad patronage. It's not like white people gave black creators money and allowed them both the room and the respect to create what they wished. It was inherently and unwaveringly intertwined with white approval. You may be shocked to hear of these amazing figures like Hurston and Hughes putting up with someone like Mason. Hurston in particular to me sticks out as such a headstrong and unapologetic lady. She was a straight baddie who was never a afraid to speak her mind. Yet, like I mentioned earlier, they both loved her dearly. In fact, Hurston's and Langston's relationship with Mason outlasted the friendship that they had with one another. I know I mentioned in our Hughes episode that he and Hurston had once been very close. Well, their relationship actually took a turn for the worst after they were unable to see eye to eye on a project that they had been working on together. I won't go too much into detail about that, but it does lead me to an interview titled The Doomed Friendship That Helped Define After African-American literature conducted by Jennifer Baker and published on electricliterature.com. Baker interviewed Yuval Taylor, who is the author of the book titled Zora and Langston, which dives into the events that caused their friendship to sour. And I'm bringing this interview up not only because it had me dying to read the book, but also because it had some insightful words regarding the relationship they both had with Mason and how it affected Taylor's ability to portray her characterization in his book. Here's a quote. My distaste also presented a difficulty because Zora and Langston loved her so much, and that love is so real in their letters to her. She had engendered that love in so many of the people that she met. It's hard at this distance of 90 years to really make that charisma, that attraction that she had, real. This really complicates things for me. As a fan of both Hurston and Hughes, I want to be understanding of this love that they had for her, and I think in many ways it is understandable. They both had creative minds, and their work speaks for itself about how gifted they both were. Mason provided something they both greatly deserved, which was the financial support they needed in order to achieve their professional aspirations. But at the same time, just because they loved her, it doesn't dissolve her from being problematic and 
furthermore, I think it might also point to something else as well. I think it's pretty revealing that out of the ones available, Charlotte Mason was revered to be one of the better white patrons that took part in this movement, which I wish could say was surprising to me, but sadly, it really isn't. Charlotte Osgood Mason and others just like her absolutely reeked of misguided allyship. Not only for all of the reasons that we've been pointing out, but some other topics that we haven't hit yet, like white heroism. One of the things that makes me so uncomfortable with white patrons during the Harlem Renaissance is this power dynamic that it sets up. Point blank, what it did was set up this constant need to answer to the good, gracious, rich white people who were humble enough to take pity on the needy black community. And that's statement should make you uncomfortable too, because it's disgusting to think in any context that black creators were often put in this horribly unbalanced power structure, especially during one of the most empowering cultural waves that the African American community have received at that point in history. It is deeply upsetting how prevalent this dynamic has always been between black people and specifically upper class white people in this country. Of course, it is far too similar to the power dynamic enforced by the traditional form of slavery by the elite planter class. As much as we can say all day that that dynamic didn't die after slavery officially ended in the United States, this is one of the concrete historic examples of one of the many ways it did not. And not only did this dynamic not end, but this time it packed something even more unsettling in its wake. Instead of claiming the rewards of the manual labor slaves once carried out on plantations, now they were claiming the rewards of a different seed that was being planted, the one of creativity and culture and expression. Now that the world had turned a slightly more favorable eye to the wave of culture of this era, rich white people wanted in on it too. And that makes the feelings of someone like Zora Neale Hurston even more understandable. She had always been sure to uplift the voice of the everyday black person. She was adamant that black culture had been thriving in its own way for years before the term new negro was coined in the age of the harlem renaissance whether white people had cared about it or not beauty had blossomed in rural black communities and culture was all around it will never not be true that the movement was indeed uplifting and celebratory of black people, but it's important to understand why that was so. It was not because this movement carried white money with it, so it was somehow more valid. It was not that there was finally an elite black class that had begun to take root and with it, the number of educated black people began to rise. It was because black people were finally given national and international recognition for their contributions. Yes, the movement came with its valid critiques and shortcomings, but even so, it is something that no twisted patron could ever strip away from the black experience in the United States or black culture as a whole. The Harlem Renaissance was seriously such an amazing time and I encourage all of you to continue your education and appreciation for this subject. Dive more into the amazing artists and writers and creators of this time. Read some of the novels 
novels from these authors, explore the incredible philosophy, fall in love with the music, and never stop being grateful for and respectful of the wonderful people who took part in this movement and those who carry the spirit of it in their own work and lives today. And with that, we are going to end our last lecture of season one. <laughs> and we're going to take a break. Go vote. Get some tea. And we'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Alisa Shifty Shadows. Have you ever felt the sensation of being followed, but the only thing behind you was your own shadow? Have you ever seen glimpses of darkness out of the corner of your eye? Are scenes of Peter Pan's shadow all too real to you? then you too may have a shifty shadow. If you want to make sure Elisa doesn't get snatched by this featureless foe, you can donate to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi or join us on Patreon. Elisa's shifty shadows. Make sure to watch your own the next time you turn a corner. Another amazing song by Dr. Weber today. Wanted to give you a little relaxation after our little spoopy, definitely not fake sponsor. That song is called Reminiscing and it was released as a single this month. So you can check it out now on YouTube or Spotify or really any music platform pretty much. I love that this was used for our last official episode this year. It helps provide us with a moment of rest and reflection of the gratefulness and the wonderful season that we've had this year. It is such a gentle song, honestly. There's so much about it to love. For me, the feeling of reminiscing is one of the most beautiful, the most wise, and the most heartwarming feelings within the scope of human emotion. You would think that it would be impossible to capture through a song, and yet I can say with full confidence that is exactly what Dr. Weber has been able to do. I love listening to this song with my eyes closed and just revisiting some of the most happiest and safest moments of my life. It's an absolutely stunning piece. I agree. I think this song really encapsulates the mix of fondness and a distant, almost sadness I think a lot of people experience when thinking about our past. The appreciation for every place we've been, for the things we've experienced, the hard times, and all the fun and contentness you can have in the simplicity of youth but also the sadness of a time gone and all the people and versions of ourselves we've left behind. And I think that's a lovely way to end this season. We don't get another first season. We'll always remember this one and we'll grow as podcasters, but we can look back on this first season and see the way the show has evolved, the way we've evolved, and just the way that people have reached out to us or felt represented or safe in this space that we created where we have the control. I don't think a song could better capture that feeling or that there would be a better note to end our first season on. Once again, Dr. Weber, you have created something so beautiful. 
Dr. Weber says a lot that he has appreciation for beauty, and I hope that he knows that he puts a lot of beauty out there himself. Alright, as mentioned before, we did just get back from voting, so that was great. <laughs> I feel very productive just with that alone. Yes, I agree. It went very well, very smoothly, and I hope that you have also figured out a plan for how you're going to vote if you have not already. Yeah. All right. So how are you feeling, Alisa? Um, I'm feeling really good today. Not cold because I <laughs> have a sweater. You prepared correctly this time. Yes. All right. Good. So you're not cold. How are you feeling? Like, like I said, feeling very productive today. It's good to vote. Recording always takes up a lot of time. So it's good to have that done for the week. What are you drinking over there? I'm wrapping up this year with my all-time favorite tea, which we have had on multiple occasions this season, Huang Jingui. It's raining outside. It's the vibe. It's the vibe. How about you, Lisa? I'm currently drinking two drinks. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, first, I'm also having some Huang Jingui because rainy day every day. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm also having a vanilla chai latte with macadamia nut milk. It's really good. Who's your artist this week, Elisa? My artist this week is Jasmine Anita. You can find her at J-V-Z-M-I-N-A, Jasmina, on Instagram. And I just cannot give this artist enough love. She's an active duty service member and a visual artist, and just the work she's doing redesigning characters for Blacktober is immaculate. The skin tones, the hairstyles and textures, the amount of detail in works for a daily art challenge just show that she's practicing, unlike a certain perfect <clears throat> me. <laughs> but... Also, just how well she knows her style and speaks to the quality of her work in general. I cannot stress enough just how gorgeous these works are. They're typically in a cartoon anime adjacent style and the poses are dynamic. The works are just so interesting to look at. I spent a long time just lost on her Instagram because I loved her work that much. Check it out. And if you are one of our beautiful Black listeners and you are an avid consumer of cartoon and anime like myself, you will enjoy seeing yourself in so many beloved characters. And if you're not sold yet on Jasmine's website, it says that she strives to create focusing on marginalized groups and representing them in ethereal, magnificent lights. By drawing queer, fat, trans, non-binary, and alternative people of color, those not considered to be conventionally beautiful, she is reminding the world of their power. And that really is something that we should all work towards doing is just normalizing different forms of beauty because what a beautiful world we live in. So many beautiful people that don't get credit for being beautiful. Who's your artist this week, Ren? My artist this week is instagram user in david yule first up bonus points for that pun bro <laughs> loving it this dude's art is insanely impressive i could spend all day scrolling through his instagram his pieces have a feeling of like a comic book style almost mixed with modern day cartoon style a ton of the brightest and boldest colors the representation of dark skin tones in his pieces are immaculate my gosh he also, like Elisa's artist this week, often redesigns traditionally white characters into black characters. One of my favorite ones that he's done like this is some characters from Kim Possible. I 
loved that show growing up so much. Heike, I still love that show. So I loved seeing that. And he did an amazing job. But he's not just a visual artist, he's also an author. He has a published book titled Progress, Poetry and Portraits. He also is the creator of something called Hood Versions webcomic. Basically, the webcomic is meant to make short comics of biblical scenes translated into AAEV and also everyday life like clapback season moments. Elisa and I had such a good time reading through those. He also has more of that style of short comics on his official website. They are amazing. Go check them out and give them some love. Yes, I just want to say that while we were scrolling through those comics and reading them, hilarious. I (laughs) was dying laughing. Mm -hmm. If you have a knowledge of just general Bible stories, you will find it hilarious. It also translates well for people that don't have that knowledge just because it's funny in general. But if you do, it just adds that extra layer because you know what was going down yeah. in those scenes. And it, it's just so funny. My favorite one would have to be the Judas. He, he, does, he does one with Judas, Peter, and Jesus and amazing. <laughs> so would you like to introduce our last activist of season one would i here i go our activist this week is amandala steinberg you probably actually know this person already they are quite famous for their roles in some major motion pictures they played rue in the hunger games and also played star the leading role in the hate you give you might not know this about them but they aren't just out here acting they're also making some impressive waves as a voice for the queer community as well as the black community The Human Rights Campaign gave them a Visibility Award for being an amazing queer role model. The Times dubbed them to be one of the next generation leaders. They provide an amazing voice to so many marginalized communities, truly encapsulating that intersectionality that we love to see. They've been out here for years using their platform for good. I have always wanted to see them get some more hype and that is why we chose them for activists. They are honestly so impressive and please send some appreciation their way. Alisa, tell us about the news. Okay. For news this week, we are once again going to talk about voting. This is the last time we are going to get a chance to speak with you all before the election day. We have been more than clear on our positions and which candidate we are hoping to win. However, at the end of the day, we want everyone who is eligible to vote to go out and make their voices heard and use their own judgment and voice to decide who they want to support. No matter who you're voting for, just go vote. Now, do we believe that people who vote for Trump are immoral and have no concern for our well-being as people? Absolutely. You cannot convince me that Trump nor his supporters want to protect me and my rights as a human being. Say it louder for the people in the back, Elisa. That being said, we never want any form of voter suppression and I'm honestly appalled at the behavior of some politicians and citizens and judges as of late. Burning ballot drop boxes in metropolitan cities, changing the voting guidelines in different states days before the election, allowing people to openly carry weapons to the polling place like that's not literally a page out of a voting suppression textbook, limiting drop box locations, and just so, so much more. And all of that is on top of the usual forms of voter suppression, such as laws that deny voting rights to felons, requiring voting cards or identification, 
closing polling places, long lines, like excessively long. I'm here for hours long lines and just having so, so many elections. With all of that going on, I know that in some places it is a lot to ask that you be informed on the policies of these candidates. Go out and stand in line all day and vote. And then track your ballot to ensure that your vote is counted. These measures are absolutely not something we should have to do in order to vote in the land of the free. However, that is the reality. I want the results of the election to truly showcase the will of the people. One, because I do not believe that the majority of people in this country want Trump to be elected, but also because I believe that when everyone votes, they will be forced to listen to us. So please go out and vote. We don't have to play into the whims of the not-so-silent minority whose ancestors have ensured that their voice is louder. There is enough of us to drown out that hate. I am fully satisfied (laughs) with wrapping up the episode there. Very well spoken, Elisa. So let's go ahead and bid our adieu for now. Like we said, we will be coming back at you in about probably like what? A week, two weeks. You'll be hearing from us very soon. Don't worry. (laughs) In the meantime, please check us out on Ko-Fi and Patreon, which by the way, we will be pausing any Patreon payments during the time that we're away so that you're not paying for anything that you won't be able to actually get access to because we're not releasing new content. However, you can still sign up for when we come back. (laughs) (laughs) And I will still be lightly active on social media throughout the break. So if you want to get a hold of us, if you want to see our reaction to whatever the results of this election will be, we'll still be posting, just not as frequently. Please feel free to reach out to us still. With that being said, bye!